0: So, we're actually going to make it out of Luke chapter 12 today. I know that's going to thrill you. We're going to make it to Luke chapter 13. But don't go there because we're going to start in Luke 12. So we're going to start uh, at verse 35, uh, but we're only going to spend a couple of minutes there. And then we're going to move on to chapter 13. Lord willing, uh, thank you, Les, for the prayers. I need them. Really? We ended last week with a warning from Jesus to his disciples. We've been spent, I I think this is the fourth, it may be the fifth Sunday, in a discussion to those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he ends with this warning. Uh, It's actually uh, four verses that I'll share with you uh, for those of us that would follow Jesus. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves be like unto men that wait for their Lord. And when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. I've often joked, you know, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 that John looked up and saw a door opened in heaven. He heard a trumpet blast and he heard a voice that said, Come up here. And I've often thought, gee, I wonder if I'm going to look back and see if my boat's okay as I'm flying through the air, you know, I think... Uh, turn to a pillar of salt and drop to the ground and shatter into a million pieces? No, I, I think it's going to be too quick for me to even think. He said, blessed are those servants who the Lord, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily, I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet. Now, remember, he wanted us to gird ourselves as a servant, as a worker, ready to move. Now he's going to gird himself as a servant and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And I believe that's a reference to what we call the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which I believe the church will celebrate during that period of time we call the tribulation. Uh, And uh, I I think there'll be a great celebration for us up there at that time. Although I don't know that there's any prophecy that tells you specifically that the Marriage Supper of the Lamb will be during the tribulation period. I've just always heard it that way, and I'm not even sure at this point why I've heard it that way. And if he, talking about Jesus, shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants that are waiting, you see. The point is, we are to be ready to go. We are to keep our candles burning. We are to keep our witness bright. We are to stay faithful to him. We are to stay true to him. We are to be ready to give an accounting of ourselves to him and to others as to why we have faith in Jesus. We were to be like men who wait for their Lord. And so that when the Lord returns, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. Boat or no boat, we're ready to go. You know, I say to those servants, I will gourd myself and serve them. Wow, what a promise. Now, Paul speaks of that. Um, those of us that are anxious, Paul is about to be offered in 2 Timothy. He's about to be murdered by uh, Rome. And he's in a prison as he writes these words. And he says, "...Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day." And you know, you think, well, that's true. I mean, I, I have no problem with the thinking that, that Paul's going to get a crown. He's probably the greatest missionary that ever lived. Uh, it, 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 certainly not, not the greatest preacher, because Jesus was the greatest preacher. And if you think of Jesus as a missionary, I rarely do. But when you think of him, he was on a mission. I remember uh Dr. Gray Allison used to say in seminararies that God had one son and he he called him to be a missionary and i i don't I don't know if i I buy that philosophy, uh, but he was definitely on a mission uh, but I, I think Paul is certainly one of the greatest uh, human missionaries and preachers that ever lived, but what surprises you in that verse is the end of it, and not to me only, but unto all those also that love is appearing. There's a promised crown for those of us that look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ and stay true. That is the point. Now, interestingly enough, it's at this point that he turns and starts to talk to the people. I put that in red, not not because Jesus said it, actually Luke said it, but just to highlight it for you. Uh, And he said also to the people. Now, we've been 53 verses talking to the disciples. And now we're finally turning to the people. Now, you have to go way back in your memory. And I didn't go back and look, so I can't give you the verse reference. But way back in the beginning, there were people that wanted him to show them a sign. He was arguing with the Pharisees in the beginning of this chapter. And it said, and the people were seeking also for a sign. And so you got to keep that back tucked in the back of your mind as to why he actually seems... I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much of my own emotions into it. But he seems to me to be a little irked with these people. Uh, Now you'll recall that this all started in in a Pharisee's breakfast or brunch invitation and a huge mob of people gathered around. And that word there to the people is actually, Luke wrote, to the multitude. Uh, When you see a cloud rise out of the west straightway, you say, there cometh a shower and so it is. You look at the sky and you know it's going to rain. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it cometh to pass. Now, probably this isn't what they were hoping for as he turned to them and thought, well, now it's our turn. But it wasn't pleasant what he has to say. You hypocrites. I I don't know. I could never be that bold. I, I don't know how people can do that looking at hundreds and hundreds of people and standing in the midst of a massive crowd, some of which already hate you to begin with, and then turning around and telling them the truth. He isn't being hateful, he's actually acting in love. And sometimes it's much harder to tell someone you love or care about the truth than it is to just say, oh, you're doing all right, you're gonna be okay. Yes, Aunt Bessie's in heaven. I know she's dancing with the angels. It's much harder to be truthful and tell people where they're really at. And to pull those words out of your throat is very difficult. But Jesus was able, well, because I guess a part of this was a certain aspect of his mission. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and not the earth. How is it that you not discern, and of the earth, I'm sorry, and how is it that you do not discern this time? And I, I don't know how much you know about Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, but the Old Testament specifically said when the Messiah would come, and in Daniel, he even gives them the date. If they can count on their fingers, they'd be all right. Well... I think if my memory is correct, it's 183,883, so that's a lot of fingers. You'll be back over them a few times. But the point is, he actually did give them a time uh, when they could look for their Messiah. And a lot of them were looking for their Messiah. But he's rebuking them there because they can tell the weather, but they can't tell who he is. You look at the sky and you know it's going to rain, but you can't tell what time we're in. They hear his words, they see his actions. And they want more proof? What do they want for a sign? I mean, he's already just healed a person, and he's going to heal another one in just a few minutes after this sermon. And uh, yet, they want more. I, I don't know what they want. Maybe they want the fish and the chips that were in Galilee that day when everybody sought for a sign, and he fed them more than they've ever eaten before. He also says to them, another thing they don't want to hear, yes, and and why? Even of yourselves, judge ye not what is right. Now, he's in trouble with the Pharisees for healing on Sunday. And he's making the argument that the needs of people come before the needs of the law. He's going to heal another woman, at, as this passage continues, uh I'm not going to continue that far, but as this passage continues, he's going to heal another woman on a Sabbath day in the synagogue and the arguments are going to fly over that whole violation of the uh, mitz. I forgot the word now. That's it's, Somebody help me here. What is it? Mishnah. Thank you. Thank you. Mishnah. It came to me. Uh, which is the oral law. He was constantly, I don't know if deliberately, but Perhaps unintentionally or intentionally, violating the oral law and challenging those who held to it to keep the Old Testament law and not just their book of rules. He challenged their legalism, which goes against the grain of most Jews. So he says, "And, and how is it? How is it that you yourselves can't judge what is right?" You know, he the argument is back oh a month ago that he he couldn't be healing these people with the power of God. They don't say, why not? Uh, because if he was healing these people by the power of God, then they would know God has come into the flesh, right? So he has to be healing people by the power of Satan. That's where this whole argument began. Can't you judge what is right? Can't you see what's going on? I, I wonder what he'd say to us in our in our highly political and divided world that we live in in the United States now is about our inability to discern right from wrong. And he makes a statement which is curious and a little, to me, a little obtuse, uh, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, so you got this this lawyer or this person who's accusing you of something, uh, your adversary. Uh, of course, you know, oftentimes the adversary is a reference to Satan, but in this context, I think it's actually another neighbor or a friend or a lawyer that a friend has hired to to sue you for something or claims you've done something wrong. When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, that would be the judge, right? As thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge. And the judge delivered thee to the officer. That's the officer of the court that locks you in prison. And the officer casts thee into prison. You think, that is the weirdest statement. You have to go over it four or five times. But it's fairly simple what he's saying if if you'll work your way through it. He's saying to you, settle your score with God before you stand in the white throne judgment. You know, if 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 Satan, your adversary, can scrounge up anything against you and accuse you to God, get that settled before you stand before the judge. Because he says, I tell you, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. Now the mite is a tiny little fleck off of a penny, so it's a very small piece of money. Now, the great white throne is the one court in which you do not want to appear. Uh, My understanding is the great white throne judgment. Jesus will be the judge. God will have appointed him so, or may have already, seems to be so in Scripture. And it will be after the rapture of the church, it will be after the tribulation, it will be after the millennial reign, a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, but before eternity future. And the great white throne judgment will determine whether or not those in the lost world will enter into eternity future. And they'll open three books, the book of law, the book of works, and the Lamb's book of life. And people, people who don't know Jesus, people who have not come to Christ, not confessed their sins or sought forgiveness prior to this time, will find themselves standing before Jesus, judged by every law that they violated, every evil work they did, and just before judgment is pronounced, there will be one last look in the Lamb's Book of Life to make sure their name isn't written down there. And if your name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation chapter 20 tells us, they will be cast into the lake of fire. It's at the great white right throne that the lost world will face the full penalty of their sin, eternal death, forever destroyed in God's judgment. Jesus is telling these people, determine what is right and settle with God, your current situation with him, do not put it off. Now, it must have been hitting home because it seems to me that in the next verse, Luke chapter 13, and there were present at that season, those words indicate at that very season, at that very time, at that season itself, the Greek literally reads, and it means at the same time, apparently in close connection, right? There were present at that season some who told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This may have been an attempt to entrap Jesus when you think about it. There was apparently at some time back, and and we're not clear about this, some people say it was 20 years ago, other people argue about what this is a reference to. There is a reference, and I'll read that in a minute uh, later on, Uh, but uh, there is a reference that I'll read you in Acts chapter 5, which is a possible reference to this particular event. Uh, but there is it appears to be an attempt here to get Jesus to say one way or the other how he comes in on this uh, this statement if if he supports the idea of the Galileans who have this insurrection in other words if you voted for Trump uh, you'd be in trouble with the government right but if you if you don't support the insurrection, you'll be in trouble with the people that hold these people of heroes. So it seems like one of those catch 22s where you try to catch this guy and have the public turn against him. At least that's the way it seems to me. Jesus makes no statement about the goodness or the badness of how about this insurrection. He makes almost no comment on it at all except, he says in verse 2, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered these things. Now, you know, the only reference to this in the New Testament is here. Uh, This is uh, Gamaliel, uh, probably the, the highest degree teacher of Israel, also serving on the Sanhedrin, speaking to the Sanhedrin, which at that time in Jesus' day, was the Supreme Court of Israel. And uh, Peter had just been arrested because he and some buddies went to the temple and healed a guy that was waiting outside the temple. And that was okay that he healed the guy, but he healed him in Jesus' name. And they they had been forbidden to speak in his name. So this was the trial. This is right in the middle of Peter's trial. Uh, And it says, this is Gamaliel speaking, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now, Gamaliel, speaking to the Sanhedrin, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men. This is probably saving Peter's life in the earthly sense, in the, in the world worldly sense. I mean, they, they couldn't have hurt Peter if they wanted to until God was ready for it to happen, you know. Uh, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So the crowd wants to know, why would God allow these Galileans to be murdered in the temple at the place where they offer their sacrifices? Again, they're not going to like his answer. His answer, <laughs> I tell you, no. They're not, of course, I broke it up with that Acts verse in there. They're not, they're not sinners above the others. See, I should back up and show you that. Uh, no, he said, uh, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The truth is, you know, these guys are not examples, especially singled out of divine vengeance. Why did God allow this to happen? Well, why Why do you think God let that happen? Did they do something wrong? Are are the people in central western Florida guilty of some special sin? Uh, That's the question that's being asked here. And the truth is, no. They're not. And the fact is, folks, unless you repent, you will all die the same way. Now, They're going to talk about a building falling on you, and they're going to be talking, and they've already talked about being killed in an insurrection. That's not the point. Everyone who has not repented of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ will be destroyed. That's the point Jesus is making. You can't pick this out and say, well, they did something wrong or this happened. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's at war with God. We live in a world where things go wrong, and things go wrong for everybody. Uh, buildings fall uh, we'll talk about these uh, in just a minute uh, buildings fall uh, problems come soldiers kill people who aren't worthy of death, I mean this, this kind of thing happens to all of us and the important thing is that we be saved it, I, Jesus is not saying if you've repented uh, if you've repented these things won't happen to you all he's saying is if you repent and come to faith in Christ you won't perish Your physical body will die, but you won't perish. And that's the point that he's attempting to make here. I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. These men are not special examples of divine vengeance for personal sin. Every unrepentant sinner, including yourselves, except you repent, shall become monuments, examples of the terrifying judgment of God. Now, A.T. Robertson reads into this and sees forward one year in the ministry of Jesus Christ And he sees the fall fall of Jerusalem. He sees the rejection of Christ in one year. He sees the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he sees in AD 70 the destruction of Jerusalem. He sees all of this as he looks forward. This is what Jesus is warning them about. If you don't wise up and figure out what's right and get on the right side, you're going to be destroyed. That's the point. Now, whether or not... You know, you get hit by a car, run over by a bus, hit by a train, or have a heart attack. It really doesn't matter. What matters is what happens after the heart attack. I remember asking a lady one time, I forgot her last name now, her first name was Jill. She had just retired. I said, Joe, do you have any plans after your retirement? And she goes, huh? <laughs> do you have any plans after your retirement? Uh, I think I'm going to be dead. I hope not. I hope you're going to be more alive than you ever were. (laughs) Yeah, in a more awful sense than the destruction of Jerusalem is the fact that many of those Jews didn't know Jesus and ended up perishing in eternal hell. That's the point. Then Jesus brings up an example of his own, uh, or those 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell, and I haven't done enough research. I don't know anyone that's actually talked about what this event was. Apparently, in my mind, it was a construction accident that everybody was talking about that was in the news that day. I don't know that. I'm just guessing. I don't want to pretend like I know something in the scriptures that I don't. And slew them. So these guys, I'm thinking the tower fell on them and killed them. I'm thinking they were working on them, but I don't know. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I want to talk about repentance just for a minute. Because I want to talk about what it is. Uh, the word is almost always rendered with different endings, metanoeo. Uh, noeo is, we get our word gnosis, and we, we have churches that are called Gnostic churches because they have the knowledge. And any church that claims that they have the knowledge, the only knowledge, the only way, the only ones, they're, they're rooted in the Old old. Teachings of Gnosticism very much alive today. Meta means to turn or to change. So it means to change your knowledge, to change your mind, to turn around, to change how you think about things. Uh, and you tell someone you have to repent, a lost person, you have to repent of your sins. Well, they don't see what they're doing as sin. They don't see the wrong that they're doing. This is what Jesus is accusing them of. You don't see. You can, you can tell the weather, but you can't tell what's going on in your own life, see? I, I remember I, I, I was a one-pack-a-day and then a two-pack-a-day, and I was working my way up to a three-pack-a-day smoker when some guy on the radio said, "It's it's been proven now that smoking causes lung cancer, and... They'd mumbled about it before, but now now it was official. And I remember looking over at that carton of cigarettes that I kept on the dash in my pickup truck, and I remember thinking, they're not my friends. I used to think of them as my friends. I couldn't sleep if I didn't have a carton around. Not just a pack, but a carton. And I, I changed my mind about smoking that day. I didn't quit that day, but I changed my mind. It's a good illustration. I don't mean that smoking is a sin. It's not good for you. But if we made everything that wasn't good for us a sin, there wouldn't be much we could do, would there? Um, Certainly wouldn't eat that cake in the back later, um, would we? But uh, the point is, I changed my mind that day, and that's what repentance is. But it doesn't come from inside. I didn't work that up in my mind. It came from the outside, and that's what I want you to see. God gives repentance. So if you can't see it, if you can't see your sin... If you can't see what's going on in your life is wrong, and the things you were doing was wrong. You know, I used to steal from hardware stores all the time. And if I got out the door, I felt like I'd made it. It was a great victory to me. It wasn't a criminal act until I became a Christian. Then when I stole from a hardware store, I felt terrible, which was interesting because that's how I realized that God was doing something in my life because all of a sudden the things that I loved doing were loathsome. Something changed. It changed from the outside. This is Peter speaking in his sermon. Him hath God exalted, talking about Jesus with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. We all talk about Jesus as savior, but he also gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We we can't bring repentance to ourselves it's getting a little calvinistic in here i know Uh, this is paul talking to timothy who's a young preacher man and the servant that would be timothy that would be you me and the servant of the lord must not strive we must be gentle we can't get in big arguments with people about their lostness we have to be gentle Unto all men, apt to teach, we have to be patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves because they don't know they're opposing themselves. See, they're destroying themselves, they don't know it. If if God peradventure will give, where does repentance come from? If peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him and his will. It's a fascinating thing here because, you know, Calvinist says, you know, repentance comes from God and It does. But once you've received repentance, once you see your lostness, once you see your fallenness, I'm making up a word here, we must recover ourselves out of the snare of the devil. We have to turn from that. That's that's the beginning of repentance. See, when our mind starts to look at that carton of cigarettes and realize that's no longer my friend, that's my enemy, that's the birth of repentance in the mind of a lost sinner, and we begin to see ourselves as fallen. And then what happens is, at least in my own personal experiences, then I say, well, then I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to this, and I'm not going to that, and I'm not going to do this other thing. But we find out that the more, the longer the list we make, the more impossible it is to keep it. And the harder we try, the more we fail, and we find ourselves reading Romans chapter 7 and saying, oh, Paul had the same problem. The more I try, the harder I try, the worser I get. I know it's not a word. Romans chapter 2 and verse 3, And thinkest thou, O man, speaking to the Jews now, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, Thou that judgest them which do such things, that thou thou doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? All the great things that God had brought in my life, all the good in my life came from God. All the bad in my life came from my sin. That should lead me to understand there's something going on here. But after the hardness and impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, treasures up thou to thyself wrath against the day of wrath. The longer we put it off, the worse we make our situation with God. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, you can spell that great white throne, who will render to every man according to his deeds. It has to be according to his deeds because there's no blood of Christ covering him. It's a sad state of affairs, but the truth is repentance comes from God. It's a gift from God. It begins when we begin to acknowledge the truth. God's goodness in our lives should bring us to repentance. And the more we resist God, the more of his wrath we will face. And then Jesus tells a parable. I'm assuming... This is all sequential. From the beginning of verse 1 of this chapter, it's all sequential. And if I'm not mistaken, it actually trails back into the chapter before it with the invitation for breakfast with this Pharisee. And I'll tell you what, if I had invited him to breakfast, for a quiet little breakfast, and it turned out like this with the whole city standing around. I might have thought twice about it, inviting him the next time, because I'm telling you, he's he's done nothing but offend everybody in the room. I wonder if anybody's even eaten anything, except I'd be in the back with the coffee and the doughnuts, just nibbling away while everybody was angry at Jesus. And he spake also into this parable: A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. You know, I don't know if this is true, but in your Bible study, you might try to notice. I've, I've been told uh, every time it's a certain man or a certain king uh, that it's a parable. And every time there's a name, it's not a parable. It's a true story. I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting observation. And he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, behold, these three years I have come seeking fruit. I've heard people cynically say, well, it takes three years for a uh, Fig tree to bear fruit, well, I think the farmer knew that. I'm assuming he came on year four, five, and six, these three years, not year one, two, and three, looking at this little tiny tree thing. Why aren't there any figs on you? You know, I'm assuming that we're in the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth year. He said to the dresser, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I don't find any. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why should I let it take up space in my vineyard? Now, I don't know if you see the threat in that, but there's a terrible threat in that because the fig tree represents Israel. And cut it down is a terrifying thought when you realize that for 2,000 years, Israel lost its nation. It was promised that God eventually, before the end of time, would bring them back, and he did. 1948, he brought Israel back and Israel became a nation and all of us who know the Bible started to get excited. Well, I was two years old. I wasn't too excited. But a lot of people who knew the Bible started to get excited because Israel, who would never become a nation, has become a nation and we knew that the end times were swinging into gear. Clearly, the Jewish nation is meant by this parable of the barren fig tree. The withering of the barren fig tree will prove it later because a year from now, Curiously enough, do I have it here? Yeah, yeah. One year later from this parable, all right. one year later, Matthew records this event. Now it was in the morning as he returned to the city, Jerusalem. This is a year later in Jerusalem. I know I'm jumping around, probably driving you crazy. He was hungry. And when he saw the fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but the leaves only. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away and I remember it said when the disciples came back from work from their work in the city that day they saw the fig tree was dead and they were astonished they realized that something serious was going on here this is the farmer I didn't do anything good my clicky thing is broken there we go this is the farmer I, I'm Back in the parable now, the farmer says, three years, I've tried. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years. Interesting parallel, isn't it? The farmer said, three years, I've come here looking for fruit. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Actually, he said, cut it out. Uh, But In the Greek, it's out. But in our mind, you don't cut a tree out, you cut it down. If I'm hoeing corn, I might cut some corn out. I might thin the corn, but I don't think of bushes and trees. I think of cut it down. Now the gardener, the farmer, says to the Lord, let's let it alone one more year. How long was it from the parable until the the tree, the bush was cursed? One year. The farmer said, let it alone one year and I'll dig about it and I'll dung it. I don't know how dung applies to the people of Israel. I don't. I just think that's just part of the parable. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. It's an ominous ending to, so far, 60-some verses of the Breakfast Club. Uh, Israel, you only have one more year. And I'm going to cut it all down. And he did they rejected him. Matthew chapter 23, he rejected them. A.D. 70, the Roman legions came in and destroyed the city. And for 2,000 years, Israel was gone, scattered to the winds of the earth. Now, I can't read this without wondering, first of all, if it is America and if you're Canadian, I'll be specific, if it is the United States of America, because I know Mexicans and Canadians are really Americans, but so I'll say if it's the United States, it's now on the same chopping block. I mean, we've been incredibly blessed by God, incredibly protected, have been given incredible privileges, but we have turned from him and I wonder at times if like many other nations of the past we've served our usefulness and he's now done with us and I pray that he's not I pro- I love the promises if my people will humble themselves and pray I will forgive their land turn from their wicked ways and seek my face and I will forgive their land I think repentance is our only hope I worry that we've had our time with God's blessing and because we're unrepentant and unwilling to acknowledge our wrong, God is in the process of giving up this country. I hope that's not true. I also worry that someone listening to me has never found true repentance. You may have quit smoking, but you haven't quit sinning. And I pray that this will be the day you see yourself as a sinner. That's a good thing. It's a good thing when you recognize. I, it's painful. I remember once I, my eyes were opened, everything I did was wrong. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even do right because when I did right, I was doing it to prove that I didn't need saving. <laughs> I was saving myself with my good works, which was a worse work than the sin that I was doing. So I hope that everyone listening to me hears and sees their own sin and turns to Jesus Christ and says these simple words, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Come into my life and save me. And that's all I prayed that night on that bed. I actually put an if in there. I'm I'm sure that's not the kind of faith he was looking for. But I said, if this is true, that you killed your son so that I could be in heaven. Please let it be true for me. I didn't think anything happened until the next day. My life changed completely and forever. I can't go back. I spent years worrying about what I fall back into the old, the old man, would I go back to doing what I used to do, would I, would I suddenly start smoking again, would I suddenly you know start stealing again? I can't even tell you this, the bad stuff I was into. Uh, I was always worried that I'd go back, and I had a preacher tell me one time, "Go on back and do those things, Bob. If that's what you're worried about. Go back and do them." Well, that's the dumbest advice I've ever heard in my life from a preacher. Are you nuts? I remember riding home. I was in Brooklyn at the time. I was driving home. I was about Brandon when it finally struck me. I couldn't go back. I couldn't. It's not who I am anymore. I started to imagine what it would be like to get back with the old gang and do the old things. And I realized, oh, God, I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. And I realized God had done a work in me that I didn't understand at all. My prayer is that every one of you find that same experience. That sin is so repulsive, you realize you can't do this anymore. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for these within the sound of my voice. And I pray that every one of them. When we find ourselves at the white throne, we'll be gathered behind the king, supported by the king and protected by the king and not in front of the king to be judged by the king. I pray that our judgment will be passed because Jesus will have died for our sins. I ask this Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.